<laughs> don't like medium. Yeah, I'm more of an extra large myself. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Appropriate reaction. Oh man, I just typed medium. That's not what I meant to type at all. Tomception. Whoa. What's the. <laughs> you almost squirted the straw out your nose. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that would have hurt. You could really smell the tangerine. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Chris. And I'm Steph. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot, hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So, what's new with you, Steph? Let's see. I have been diving into the world of mechanical keyboards. Ooh. Which has been fun. The land of the clackety. The land of the clackety. It's a land I never thought I would be in. Like, I've been around plenty of people who have used them and enjoyed them. And that's been great, but it's never been an interest of mine. I never saw the reason in which they were willing to go out and buy a different keyboard to use for their daily typing. But since Greg Fisher here at ThoughtBot has his and he sits next to us, and then I think Brian Tingren, he was the one that showed you a very colorful version of a mm-hmm. mechanical keyboard. So it was the colors that, that got me first. And then looking at the colors, and then I started using Greg's mechanical keyboard, and it's really nice. I think you used it too, right? I did, yes. I, I definitely enjoy it. I, it's one of those things that I keep being like, I should do that. I should just get one. I really like them, but I can't commit. It's I'm just in decision fatigue land. Like There are so many different types of switches, and then there are different styles, and how many keys do I need? And I don't need arrow keys. I'm certain of that, but there's a lot of things to consider. Yeah. I'm in that spot, like you said, where I just I can't choose what to do. Like I feel very overwhelmed with all the different options. People have been very nice where they've been trying to help me level up in this world and understand what my decisions are and what kind of choices I can make. But part of me just wants to buy one to just like, sure, like maybe pick the one that Greg has, a fun one, maybe add some colors to it and then just go for it and then use that for a while. They're kind of expensive. I think they start out around... 200 i may be making that up 100 ish ones the like very low end i would say the entry point into the market if you will is i think closer to 100 Mm -hmm. but 150 is around like i think greg's is closer to that so yeah that gets you a perfectly fine one that's not bad I don't know if it's my development philosophy that's influencing me here, where I'm like, I don't want to spend so much time picking the right Mm. thing before I get to dabble. Part of me just wants to find something that works and meets the immediate needs and then just go with it. And then from there, level up and figure out, okay, what do I really care about? Does this make me happy? Should I try something else? And then have one play with. So in a week or two, next week, we'll see. I may have one. Steph will have the minimum viable keyboard. Minimum viable keyboard. Yes. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, let me know. Uh, I will probably buy the same one shortly after. Should I just get two? Maybe. It'll be, it'll be fun colors. I mean, I, I like colors. Colors are good. But yeah, so that's that's just been sort of like a fun thing happening in some of my downtime during the week. What else is going on? Uh, So I've also been thinking a lot about error fatigue or alert fatigue. If you're Mm. using some sort of alert tracking system, maybe New Relic, AppSignal, one of those tools that lets you know when you're getting errors from your application and thinking about the impact that has on us when we're getting all of those alerts. Do you have thoughts on that before I dive in or? I know the feeling, the like going numb to the error reports if they start building up or coming into a team where everyone is like oh yeah we get a lot of those though and and we've stopped using that as a warning sign and so it's not to imply that the that a team is not actually paying attention to things they're just saying like 
no, we, for reasons, there's a lot of noise in that and we haven't prioritized the time to reduce the noise and therefore we're not getting a lot of utility out of the error tracking. And in my experience, that's very common. Like that's a thing that happens regularly without being purposeful and trying to prevent it or trying to fix it and trying to like sort of a constantly eroding shore and you have to like add new sand to the beach to make a weird analogy. <laughs> add more sand to the beach. Yeah, because the ocean keeps taking the sand. It's eroding. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you stay on dry land. Yeah, well, you want to, yeah. I think. <laughs> Those are my thoughts as well, where you just become overloaded and it's like you said, maybe you're not ignoring the alerts, but you just have the context. So that was one concern is some folks may see the alert and they're like, yeah, I know what that's related to. It's not a fire. It's not a huge concern. It's just something that we haven't had time to prioritize and address. But everyone else on the team who's also receiving that alert may not have that same context. So then they're either opting to ignore it because they're not sure what to do, or perhaps they're then spending time digging into it to try to figure out when someone else already has that knowledge to go along with it. So I've just been thinking of ways to help mitigate that or ways to address like when you have those many alerts, like how do you start prioritizing? How do you dig yourself out of that hole? How do you how do you put the sand back on the shore? <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that analogy, everyone. <laughs> my sense is that this is different than other like tech debt things where my recommendation would be just try and make it a little bit better every time you're in there. Um, sort of the Boy Scout rule of leave the campsite cleaner. I feel like there has to be a concerted upfront effort like you have to get it back to zero in a certain way, whether that's ignoring a bunch of errors, saying like, you know what, we're ignoring this anyway, so let's actually formally ignore this within the system because most of the tracking systems have a way to say, don't alert us again about this error until the next deploy or for the next two weeks or something like that. And so to try and find a little bit of breathing room, but my sense is that this isn't one that makes sense to be like, oh, I'll just tackle this error today. It makes sense to do a an upfront effort, but I don't want that to be true. So I don't know. Do you think that's true? I think so. Just because there's too much, if you're already working on something and then to switch context to then tackle an error. Now, if you need to triage, like if you need to find out, like, is this an important error, then I think it makes sense to do that context switch. But I like the idea of living in a world where you're going to have these alerts that come through. But if there's a way, so what, maybe this will help answer your question. What I've been currently doing is to help get us back to a place where I'm feeling more comfortable with the errors that are coming in is with each error that I see is to elevate that to the team and let them know I'm seeing this error. Does anyone have context around it? I've been placing those into Trello tickets. So then anyone who has context on that ticket or that error can add it to the ticket and then we can prioritize those for the next sprint. Or if there is one that if I add something to a ticket and someone's like, oh, no, that's that's actually really important, then we can still prioritize it right away and pull it in. So that's been my first thought. I know some tools also allow you to aggregate some of your errors. So if you have a background job that's running and it's going to keep retrying that job, so you're going to see that same failure message over and over, then you can aggregate that particular type of error. So then you only get one message for it instead of getting one each time it fails. I also really like the idea that to give engineers the power to silence errors. So if we've created a ticket for an error and we know we want to address it, it's been prioritized, but we're not getting to it right now, but it's causing additional noise, is to go ahead and then turn that error off if you can. I'm not actually sure the easy support for doing that. I think you'd have to have like a custom error class to be able, at least for app signal, that may be true. 
But if you can silence that error fairly easily in the application to then silence that because you know you've captured it, you're going to work on it. But then as soon as you work on that ticket and address it, make sure you turn it back on so that way you know if it comes back. One of the previous companies I was working at, we used to go on rotation for being on call for application alerts. And you could choose different fun sounds for every time that there was like a pager alert. And so for mine, I chose the sad trombone because I was like, oh, that's cute. It's an error. It's a sad trombone. This is great. To this day, I still can't hear that sound without twitching. Oh, no. <laughs> because we had enough errors coming through that I, I, I had this sad trombone going off at like 2 a.m. or like 4 a.m. And I'd wake up a bit panicked because I didn't and I'd have to check to see what it is. And triaging something at 2 a.m. is just not a good life to lead. Especially so. when it starts with a sad trombone. And I can just imagine like a crescendo of sad trombones is like one job just keeps failing and keeps sending through. Yeah, definitely don't recommend that. I, I do remember reading from the, the New Relic team that one of the things that they do is when they have an engineer that's on call, that they will then review to see how many times that person was paged during that period. So if they're on call for like one or two weeks, and then if that person was paged more than once or twice, they review to say that's not acceptable. Like you shouldn't be interrupted during your normal life more than once, and we should fix that. And I think that's the best attitude is where it's very much a team endeavor to make sure that people aren't interrupted or fatigued from errors. But it, it takes a whole team mentality and everybody working together for it. Yep. My sense is that it's also true that error zero is not really a reasonable thing. Like true, no errors in production. I know some says like Elm claims that, but no runtime errors. But I'm not sure. There's also like exceptional cases in the code where it's like this data should never show up. If it does, Let's yell about it. And that can go to any number of systems, but I've often seen that sort of thing end up in that sort of error or alert or however you want to call that type of system. But yeah, so zero is not the answer. So you have to find that comfortable signal to noise ratio and and maintain that. But um, kudos to you for being the hero that is trying to make that change in the world be the change you want to see. Well, thanks. It's because my inbox is flooded (laughs) and I just need to, I need to bring it back down. And I was hitting that point where I was seeing these alerts. I wasn't sure what was serious, and I wanted to turn them off. But I can't bring myself to turn them off because that defeats the whole purpose of having that there. So I appreciate the thanks, but I'm I'm just trying to help. Well, I mean, I <laughs> did turn them well. off because I knew that you had them on. So, oh. uh, so literally, thanks. Oh, nice. Okay. I only got access this week, and I I know that you're on top of that, and it's going great. I think it's really heading in the right direction. So that's one way to do it too, is to have someone that's assigned to recording those alerts and have one person on rotation and handle that for a week. That's another good way. That way, everybody gets a chance to see them, and then people take breaks. I saw one other tidbit that I really liked where someone had mentioned the idea. It may have been uh, New Relic again. They have some good blog posts around this topic. And what they had recommended is when you introduce a new error that's going to get captured is to create a runbook that goes along with that. So explain why you're introducing the error. If this error occurs, like ways to start looking for what caused it, kind of triage it. So then if you are that person that gets alerted to the error, you have someone somewhere to immediately like look to get some help. So you're not just diving into that section of the code for the first time. I thought that was a cool idea. Yeah, I think if you're going to have folks that are going to be on call and if you're going to be using these systems to try and pull people into aspects of the code, then I think that all totally makes sense. But yeah, that's pretty much what's been on my mind. How about you? How's your week been going? 
Uh, it's been going well. Uh, actually, I'm working right now in code that is related to the admin portion of the site that we're working on. And I really love admin portions of sites because I can usually get away with things that I can't necessarily get away with on the true user and user facing side. Uh, and to be clear, I think these are very good things that I can get away with. Mm. So in particular, the thing that I got to use this week was the details and summary elements which are you familiar with details and summary? Vaguely. So they make like a little accordion thing. Oh, yes. And yeah. the GitHub? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or I've used them specifically with GitHub comments. My origin story with details and summary also comes from GitHub. I don't know if they were particular in like highlighting it or something, but they are HTML elements that have been around for a bit. I think they're newer ones, but uh, I definitely discovered them within pull requests or issues where people are putting in tracebacks or stack traces or things like that, which can be long and noisy. And so the details and summary thing allows you to collapse it by default and then expand it, but it's all built in and it's native and it's accessible and it's all of these wonderful things. And so I got to use that in an admin UI, but more generally, it just got me thinking about Most admin UIs, when I'm talking with someone about building something, A, I have a very clear use case that's in front of me because typically I'm working with the person who will be the consumer of this web page. I know exactly the workflow that they want. I'm able to make their life better very immediately. And almost always when I have the conversation of, uh, is it okay if I just you know build this out of plain HTML and it'll be a form and maybe I'll use an alert box or things like that, maybe details and summary, these sort of things. And so it won't necessarily have the polish is the word I'll use for the UI, but I love this style of website, the bare bones, very accessible, very like keyboard navigation works, tests are easier to write. It is very intuitive, it works, it's responsive typically, it just has all of these nice things that fall out of not going out of our way to make it fancier than it needs to be. That's interesting. I completely agree with you about especially the rewarding part. Like I love getting to talk to someone and saying, if we're working on a page that has some issues and say, what's difficult about this page? How would you wish this page would work? Maybe that's why it's so fun because we get to play that designer role or typically someone at ThoughtBot, how one of our designers would fill that role of talking to users and getting feedback as to how they would dream for the application to work. And I don't get to do that quite as often, but if I'm working on an admin page, I very much get to fill that role where I get to talk to someone and ask them those questions and I get to build it and take it back to them for a review and Yeah, I completely agree with that. I was thinking it's interesting how I wonder if there's something to carry forward with that idea of how we start the admin pages with less polish since we know that they're for a specific group of individuals, but then also carry that forward a bit to our users as well, where we start out with the more functional pieces that they need and are looking for and then start to bring in a bit more polish, but start from that place first. And then you can revisit to see if there's ways to spruce it up. Yeah, I like starting the conversation from the point of view of form over function. So start from what this needs to do, and then we can enhance it with you know visual treatments and things like that. And I definitely believe in that. And I think that can be incredibly helpful in affordances of highlighting certain text or using colors or things like that to add to the visuals, but starting from that truly functional level. Talking to designers here at ThoughtBot, this is definitely in line with, I think, their point of view as well. And this is actually, I probably borrowed this from many of them, but the idea of good semantic HTML is the foundation of what we want to build from. And then we can layer on top of that and add to it. But I find that that's so much easier to do in the world of admin pages. And details and summary is just such a fun little element set. Yeah. You know, I don't know if I've used that in just my HTML. I've used it for my GitHub comments for what you just said, where I can hide stuff so people have the option to opt in to a very long description or maybe some screenshots that I've included. But yeah, good stuff. 
So transitioning over, uh, we have a number of uh, listener questions that keep coming in. So thank you everyone who is sending those in. And again, if you do have a question, technical, career, uh, otherwise random, you can send that to hosts at bikeshed.fm and we will uh, get to it sometime in the future. Uh, thankfully, we've got enough of these that we're going to do two of them today, and we'll try and keep up so that they don't get too slow in the responses. But for today's question, this one comes from Ben Orenstein, who is a former ThoughtBot or former host of the Giant Robots podcast. And so Ben's question is, hi, Steph and Chris, after your experiences with Elm and TypeScript, what are your thoughts on the net utility of types? Do you think that you have fewer bugs than when you use dynamic languages? Is it way less? Is it worth the downsides? parentheses, what are the downsides? Given the choice, would you generally write new things in a typed language? What types of problems or domains would make you hesitate to use a typed language? So, types. What do you think? All right. Ben, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> Where to dive in first? A lot of, a lot of great questions, something that I, I still ask myself a lot, trying to figure out how I feel about types versus more dynamic languages. Uh, so I think my favorite experience, my most positive experience with types has been with Elm and Scala. I think my least favorite experience has been when types are optional. I think that is kind of like the worst world that I would choose to be in. It's still a progressive world, and I, I think it has its place in the world. But ideally, if I were getting to choose one, I would probably choose types or no types instead of an in-between world. For fewer bugs than using a dynamic language, I think you would have fewer bugs related to specific problems, like if you're calling a method on perhaps something that may be nil. But I think you could still certainly write bugs with type languages. You, they just may be more like logic-based bugs. So if you've done something unexpected or made a, an assumption in how something should behave versus why in dynamic languages, you may still run into those more like runtime type errors. So yeah, I could see how you'd have uh, some less bugs with the type languages. I've got more thoughts, but what do you think so far, Chris? Definitely agree with everything you're saying, particularly around the experience relative the requirement of types. So Elm and Scala have been great experiences. TypeScript has been, for me, a very positive experience, but every time I've used it, I've dialed it up to the highest strictness. Uh, and the more I talk to folks about TypeScript, the more that is the theme that I try and push is... Let's not think of TypeScript as JavaScript, but with types. Let's think of it as Elm, but more permissive, uh, a little more pragmatic, if you will, or Elm that coexists with the JavaScript ecosystem a little more directly. But thinking in terms of types and trying to design within types definitely have fewer bugs, but I almost take that for granted, or, or I don't focus on that when I'm thinking about types. Mm. The thing that I think about is the ability to refactor. That is probably the thing that I care about the most and that I find the most utility in. Like Elm apps just don't have runtime exceptions. And it's not entirely true, but it's true enough. It's like a rounding error of truth. And that's great, but I really care about the fact that in an Elm app, if I have a fundamental data model change that I need to make, I can just go and start that anywhere and then I can chase the compiler errors. They're probably better and worse places in terms of the compiler feedback that you're going to get. But in general, I can start a change anywhere and be like, oh, users don't have profiles anymore. Users have accounts which have access to a profile through a team, something like that. And I can just go make that change at the core data model, and then I can chase all of the errors. And once there's no more red squiggly lines in my editor, then I know it works. And that experience is fantastic. The ability to sort of muster up the courage to take on a large refactoring, it's so much easier for me to jump over that mental hurdle in a strongly typed language than it is in a language like in Rails apps that I come into, particularly ones that maybe don't have the best test coverage and have 
a lot of mutability and things flying around and before actions that are mutating instance variables. And as I start to look at those, I'm like, all right, we're going to we're going to try and fix this, but I'm going to be honest. We're going to introduce some bugs in production, and I can't do this cleanly. And there's a sort of fatigue that comes with that that is troubling. Whereas in strongly typed languages, I'm like, yeah, all right, let's do it. Uh, I don't know, start there and just hack at something and then start to chase it down. And it takes large problems like a fundamental data refactoring, and it changes them into many small problems. And I like that. Yeah, I love that feedback from the editor where you can go, like you, as you mentioned, go through and refactoring and find what you need to update and follow the errors until it compiles. There's that lovely sentiment of if it compiles, it works. That's a lot of fun. I do find that I, I write less tests if I'm using a typed language. Typically, my tests are going to be more feature-driven at the system level versus at the unit level. So that part is interesting and, and fun. A lot of times when I'm writing unit tests in Ruby, I'm running into the, oh, I misspelled this method name or, oh, I'm calling it on nil. And that stuff that I would have caught sooner if I were in a typed language. I also really like how exhaustive type languages require you to be when it comes if you're matching on a case statement. It's going to let you know if there's a particular case you didn't handle. It's also going to encourage you to think through, like, what is this when I don't have a value here? Like, how should I represent that? Or if you're trying to call a method on something that maybe doesn't have that value, so it's literally an Elm, like a maybe, and then you have to handle that case versus in Ruby, you may not find that out until runtime or at a different point. So I do love a lot of the things about type languages and a lot of the habits that it's helped me build. And a lot of that I've carried back into when I'm working with dynamic languages to then make me feel better about how I'm working in my dynamic language and feeling more confident in Ruby particularly. But, you know, it's funny, even with like this giant list of like all the reasons that I really like types, there's part of me that's just like, oh, but, you know, the dynamic language in this case, Ruby, it's still friendlier. I still love how quickly I can get up and running with it. I don't have to define as much of my world to get started with it. And then some type languages also like to use types as documentation. And I have the strong opinion that types aren't documentation, at least not in a friendly manner for anyone who's getting started with a language. So Scala was one where I struggled with this, where I'd go to the Scala docs and they'd show you the type signature for your function. And it's like, yeah, that's that's it. That's all you need, right? I'm like, no, I need so much more than that to understand how to work with this. And Ruby is very different where they will show you examples of how to use this, a couple different use cases. And a lot of that's more community-based than it is actually specific to the language. But I think that's why part of me still really enjoys the dynamic world because it has proven to be more friendly than some of the types of languages. That makes sense. To poke a little bit further at what you're going for there. So Ben, unsurprisingly, is very pragmatic in his question and he asks about the downside. So I like that he didn't frame the question as like, is it good or bad? It's what are the trade-offs because there are inherently trade-offs in everything. So to you, what are the downsides? Is there any domain specifically that you wouldn't use a type language in? Or would you reach for them as the first thing at this point? Sure. I think I'm still in the world where if it's going to be a more heavy client-side interaction application, I would strongly be interested in reaching for a type language like Elm. Like I'm going to want that right away. Otherwise, if I'm starting with a more general application and I'm not sure how much client interaction there's going to be or it's not enough to warrant having something separate like Elm, then I would probably still reach for Rails 
Scala, from my experience, is if you're doing a lot of data streaming, they have great libraries that are built in to help with that. So I don't know if that's necessarily like a type-specific answer, but it's more that they have built an ecosystem around that particular problem that makes it a great language to reach for in that domain. So it may just be because of experience that I am very comfortable with Rails that I would still like and enjoy reaching for Rails unless I feel there's enough persuasion where I'm like, oh, yeah, we're going to have enough user interaction on the client side that I'm going to want to use types or I'm going to want to introduce enough front end logic that I, I want types to back it up. So I don't think there's a particular domain, though. I don't know. What do you think? I'm generally very pro types, more and more so over time. So for me, there isn't any domain that I wouldn't use it in or anything like that. Um, But to the downsides, I do think there are potentially some downsides. One is it's a distinct way of thinking, or I think it should be a distinct way of thinking. Uh, In the same way that like writing tests is a thing that we believe in deeply, but it's also a skill set. It's a distinct skill set from just programming in the first place. And you need to learn it to be able to use it effectively. Like I've worked with code bases and frankly written plenty of tests earlier on, hopefully earlier on in my career, that were <laughs> not very useful uh, and actually impeded things. And I think the same sort of thing can happen with types. So I think part of the downsides are that it requires a commitment. Right now, I love the fact that TypeScript is as approachable in terms of, oh, we've got a huge JavaScript code base. We want to migrate it into TypeScript. You can do that, and it's designed for that. And I think that's a wonderful aspect. But depending on how long you take or depending on how gradually you sort of dip into the TypeScript pool, I think there can be an awkward middle phase there that is potentially worse, or at least many people would experience it as worse because they have to do all this extra work, but they're not feeling the benefits because they don't have enough of the TypeScript features turned on. So mostly they're just writing a lot more in their editor and it's yelling at them sometimes and it's opaque errors that they're having trouble figuring out. And so I can understand why that experience would not be pleasant for folks. And depending on the team and depending on the point in time for the team, that might be a consideration for me. But setting that aside, more and more, I would like to do everything in strongly typed languages. And it's basically for that reason that I was talking about earlier. I value being able to change my software and anything that gives me additional utility on that front is something that I'm willing to invest in. For me, that's something that's evolved over time. Like I used to be really interested in how quickly can I get started or how easily can I build out the simplest of features. But my point of view has strongly shifted over to be almost singularly focused on the ability to make changes in my software. Uh, and so that's why I love tests. That's why I love types. Uh, and so for me, I'm pro types. Yeah. And to clarify, I'm with you. I, I am too. But I I also still realize the overhead that can come with it. But I I really like how you brought people into this as an important factor of deciding which to go with, because I'm I'm sure there's a lot of interesting answers around when to use types for this domain or when it's better to use a dynamic language. And I think a lot of the times it comes down to like, well, what's your craft? What are you comfortable with? What are you efficient in? What can you work best with? And then if you're working with a team, what's best for that team? What can they work with? What are they dedicated to? Are they bought in to types? Do they know the benefit of them? Are they excited to pursue that path? And I think that is the biggest factor in choosing which resource or which tooling you're going to go with, just because that's, at the end of the day, it all comes down to teams and people. Well, I think that probably covers the type conversation. Ben, thank you so much for sending that in. And uh, hopefully that was a useful answer for you. And now, uh, Steph, I will send it over to you for question number two. All right. On to our second question. We have another question from Damon Bauer. And their question is, in my app, I have some pages that rely on fetching data from a third-party API to display content. 
Currently, I make those requests as part of my controller action, which blocks the page from loading until the request finished. I'm curious about trying out some ways to make those requests asynchronous so the main app shell loads while the data from the API is being fetched. I've seen a blog post that uses Action Cable, Active Job, and Stimulus that more or less does this, but that feels like quite a heavy lift to get all of that infrastructure going. How might you make asynchronous calls to an API and a controller action that need the response data in order to render content? Cool. All right. Great question. Yeah. Uh, Chris, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Well, to the portion in the middle there where the person references action cable, active job, and stimulus, that sounds like a lot. If you're bringing all of that in just to support this one page, I, I would definitely question that because action cable alone is going to bring in WebSockets, which is it's a different protocol. It's a whole different uh, situation there. So I would probably not pursue that. The main things I would consider are does this actually need to be a live request that happens each time we hit the controller? Or could we potentially cache a bunch of this data? And then we're working from that local cache and we update that on some regular interval, assuming it's not that terribly dynamic. If that's not the case, then I might consider send down an application shell, like you're saying, and then just use JavaScript to ping an API endpoint. And that API endpoint then makes it available. But we can have loading spinners and we can provide feedback to the user more quickly and not have them waiting five, seven, however many seconds it takes to get this data with no feedback from the web page. So I think I would consider one of those two, but I don't know. What do you think, Steph? Yeah, that's a, a good, strong suggestion. The idea of ways to provide feedback to the user, which uh, they may already be doing. Maybe they're already showing like a loading spinner or something while that API data is being fetched. Uh, the idea of it can be cached, perhaps they're in a world that they can't. I'd be curious if they're making several API requests to get data. Maybe it's just one and that happens to be a bit slow for it to load on that page. I think the idea of using Ajax to then populate the page, maybe there's something useful to initially show the user if there's like a different list or something of content that can be presented to the user while they're waiting for something else to load and then have JavaScript populate the rest of the page. If they are making multiple HTTP requests, like perhaps if you have to go to an API and first get the ID of something, and then you have to use that ID to then code to a different endpoint to then fetch the rest of the data. I've heard of a gem, I believe it's called Typhus, that you can use that will send multiple HTTP requests, or you can batch up your HTTP requests. So instead of doing one at a time, you could send off several of them. I haven't, I haven't used it myself, but that's something that I've heard of that could be of interest. I do agree with you about avoiding introducing something like Action Cable as a way to help this particular problem. There's also the idea of streaming. That's something that I've used once or twice before when it's going to take a little while to download. In my use case, it was a fun project where we were creating a video and then streaming that to the user. So we are using a streaming process. So then the user could watch as the video was progressively showing the rest of it. Or I'm sorry, it wasn't a video, it was a GIF. So at first it would start out a little bit slow where you'd only see it loading in chunks, but then we sped it up. So then it loaded pretty seamlessly, but there still was that feedback of where you're like, oh yeah, it's loading and it's done. And that was a fun way to also handle that where it was adding the data and still rendering the view as that data was coming in. So... Yeah, I think those are my initial ideas. Um, Was that HTTP streaming they were using there? Yes, it's uh, it's a Rails uh, built-in feature that we were using, but it was a while back. I can't remember. I could look into the details and put it in the show notes because that was a, a project from a while back. Yeah, it's a thing that I've heard of, but I don't think I've ever actually used HTTP streaming myself. I don't know that there are other 
means of streaming that would even be relevant in this conversation. But yeah, it's an interesting alternative option. So I think that covers a bunch of different options, but I want to dig very slightly into one because I think there's the opportunity again to pull in a lot, but I'm interested in how you would approach the version where you send down the application, but it's got sort of a placeholder and then there's an Ajax request to get that data. Like, are there frameworks that you would use there? Are you writing raw XML, HTTP requests? Are you bringing in React and friends? Let's assume that there is no real infrastructure other than uh, Webpacker, the asset pipeline in play. What would your first thing, assuming that we're, we're moving in that direction? So offhand, I'm not entirely sure how I would do that. In the past or most recent endeavors when I've, I've done this type of work, I have been working with React, so I've already had that framework available to me. But for this particular instance, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't want to pull in anything heavy like that. I'd prefer to, I guess, probably use uh, JavaScript, jQuery, something like that to help me accomplish this task. But I would prefer to avoid pulling in anything larger until I really need it. Kind of like reaching for Action Cable. It's just sort of like a, a weird additional complexity to pull in for this type of problem. Yeah. I think similarly, jQuery is the thing that comes to mind, although... I think that comes to mind because for the longest time that was just sort of given. I was table stakes within a Rails app because it was coming along with the Rails app and it was just available and it was an obvious thing to do. Although I actually don't even know about the relative size of jQuery versus React at this point. Uh, Ooh, I think it's smaller, but I don't think it's like that that much. That's a fun question. I similarly often end up in the place where the decision has already been made to bring in a front-end framework. And so that's already in place and I'm working with that. And I haven't worked in an app that was just mostly vanilla Rails with a little bit of JavaScript on top of that. Stimulus might actually be a great answer to that portion now, but just boring stimulus, not using WebSockets or fancier things like that, because I think that's the intention of stimulus, although I've never used it. I was going to say, I'm not familiar um, with stimulus, so I haven't used that. But I feel like we've got Fetch now in the browser. And you could just, You're trying to make Fetch happen. Uh, I'm trying to make Fetch happen. I think it's got enough support, and so, I don't know, maybe it's just Fetch and uh, that, or maybe it's stimulus. Probably not jQuery. Now that I think of it, is jQuery out of Rails now? Like, if you generate a new Rails app, I don't think it includes jQuery anymore. Ooh, you're putting me on the spot, and I don't know. That's fair. I don't mean to put you on the spot (laughs) on the radio. So I think the core trade-off would be probably not bringing in anything more than is necessary, but if Stimulus is already there, or if jQuery is already there, that that makes sense. Or if you're able to cache this in the background. I think there are a couple different solid answers there. I have run into that experience with a particular application where we were making an API request each time and found out that we could cache some of the data up to like 30 minutes just to help the user. So yeah, I agree. All of that sounds like sound advice to me. Cool. Well, thank you, Damon, for submitting that question to us. And I think with that, it's time for us to wrap up. Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review in iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed or reach me at at svicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Ding, ding. (laughs) Hey, look at that. (laughs) This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.